Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Ben Sterling. And so when I pick up the phone, my mother is immediately screaming at me, what's this I hear about you trying to get into porn? <laughs> that and more, but before that, remember that mailing and shipping are a routine part of running a business. It's important just to keep your operations running. But if you're making constant trips to the post office, that is a routine you are going to want to change. I'm laughing because I had to receive, not send out, but receive a package from someone for which I had to go to the post office last week. And I think I wasted roughly a day. There's a much more convenient way, at least, to send, and <laughs> that's Stamps.com. Stamps.com brings all the services of the post office right to your own desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail, and then just hand your mail to your mail carrier. You'll never waste valuable time, well, going to the post office again unless, you know, someone sends something to you uh so you, so you have more time to focus on what really matters grow in your business we use stamps.com at risk in the story studio and we love it and right now you can sign up for stamps.com and use our promo code r-i-s-k for this special offer it's a four-week trial plus a hundred and ten dollar bonus offer including postage and a digital scale so don't wait go to stamps.com before you do anything else Click on the microphone at the top of the home page and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is the crew cats behind me now. We are calling this week's episode Troubled Love. Kids, this is not. This is not our Halloween episode this week. Uh, we were unsure whether we'd have a Halloween episode whatsoever this year, but it turns out we are. It's just going to be on November 2nd. We're always late with it. Fuck it. Who cares? Now, last week's episode, the one called Shock, uh, with Trevor Noah is the cover picture for it. You know, all of our all of our episodes have listen pages on our website at risk-show.com. The listen page for an episode is where we list all the musicians and where they can be found all the storytellers and where they can be found. And then people can leave comments about the episode there. And last week's got just a slew of people talking. I chimed in on the conversation a couple of times because it got so uh, colorful. <laughs> and as always with these internet comment boards, there are going to be people, you read a comment and you think, 
Holy shit, that was really insightful. That, that had a lot of nuance. Thank you for helping me see something in a slightly different way. And then there are people who are like, yeah, okay, that was not constructive. But that is the nature of the beast. And I think, you know, there's something to be said. It's a good thing in some ways that the podcast gets people feeling so passionately one way or another. So if you ever have something to say, join the conversation. If there is one last thing, though, that I would recommend, it's that commenting there, you might want to keep in mind that the storytellers themselves are likely to see those comments. And most of these people are not professional artists and public figures. They're ordinary folks who decided to take a risk and rip their heart open in front of the world. <laughs> Case in point, on today's episode, three people are going to share very intimate details about very intimate relationships they lived through. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Gail Thomas, who is based in New York City, but first, one of those people who had never gotten up in front of a live audience before to share a true story. He did on this particular night in Toronto, Canada, in front of 300 people. This is Ben Sterling with a story we call The Puppets. So Erica and I met when we were 19 and our age is incredibly important for this story because I really figured out that when you're 19 and when you're 20, you don't know shit about how to do anything in life. Like you have some vague ideas you built up in high school, but everything is very trial and error. So this is very much a trial and error relationship. So we met and we talked on MSN Messenger because early 2000s and and we immediately bond over how we're both so much better than all those conformists in our high school and how our parents don't understand how artistic and passionate we both were. And then so we meet a few days later, we meet on the Friday night, we fuck on the Saturday night, and on the Sunday night, we both decide we should say I love you to each other. Like three days in, in this dank little dorm room at Ryerson, we're like, I love you, I love you too, oh my God. And we just become insufferable like we're just the worst couple like we we would be on the subway and we would sing Moulin Rouge songs to each other out loud just our love was so passionate and deep you have no idea so the second year's rolling around she's going to U of T I go to Ryerson we think we should move in together that seems like a great idea let's try this so we do, we move in together, we rent a little condo near Ryerson, and almost immediately the cracks start to show. So I was in the interior design program at Ryerson, and it was, it's actually a very intense program, we'd be in the studio, all, it's a little woo out there. Um, as we'd be in the studio three, four days at a time, and most of the program was girls, like it was like a 20-80 split of guys to girls, and I stupidly gave her the number for the studio. So I would be there at three in the morning and she'd call. And she just wanted to make sure A, that I was there and then find out who I was there with. 
because she was very suspicious of everyone I went to school with, which is like, we're there at three in the morning. We're all wearing sweatpants and farting because we've been eating cow chocolate and drinking Diet Coke straight from the bottle for three days straight. Like nothing sexy is happening. So there's this kind of weird jealousy or like weird blowouts where she'd find porn on my computer and then it would be a big, giant, huge argument. And her solution would be like, well, if in order to make sure you don't have porn, you can never access the internet while we're from your computer. You just don't get the internet. And we thought that was fine because we were 20 and calling into the Dan Savage podcast was not a thing yet. <laughs> Again, we're 20, we don't know. We're just like, this is how we should fix these things. And then I, like, it's obvious, okay, our relationship is not as beautiful and passionate as we thought. And then I start doing shitty things back. Because I, now I would just be like, okay, let's break up, bye. At the time, I'm like, okay, I, I think I need to find some way to kind of end this. So I should make sure she can find this, these naked photos of my ex-girlfriends on my computer. Like, just fucking leave them on the desktop so she can find them. I'm like, I'm 20. here's an idea, maybe this will work. It didn't work. Or like I would, I would actively start courting people. Like I would actually try to pick up people in my program and I would give them my home number. I would give them the number through the apartment because we didn't have cell phones at the time because I didn't know. You didn't know how to end a bloody relationship. So it just becomes awful and horrible and toxic. But every time it would come to a head, we would just kind of tamp down the argument. We wouldn't solve it. We would just tamp it down with this sort of, well, I love you. Oh, I love you too. Remember how passionately we were in love? Cool, everything's great, solved. It wasn't. But again, keep going back to this. We're 20. We're idiots. So one day we're in kind of a good period, and she turns and says to me, We're in our little, little condo we're renting near school, and she turns and says to me, Ben, are you happy? My first response is just say yes, but then my brain like jumps ahead. It's like, No, 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 trust me. This is what you need to say. And they just go, No. And they just leave it hanging. And I'm like, let's, let's just try this. Let's see what goes on with this. So what she does is she bursts into tears and becomes a sobbing, inconsolable mess. And before we're able to say another word, she picks up the phone and calls her parents and says, Ben's breaking up with me. And I can hear them say, we'll be right there. <laughs> like, All right, that's fun. So I've got now half an hour before her parents get there, so I'm like, she's still a sobbing and controllable mess. Like, she goes back, I, I cannot communicate with her. Just a little lump right here. So I'm like, all right, well, I may as well just call my dad because my dad has always done me the kindness of letting me know when his relationships are going down in flames. So let's give him a call. So I call my dad and I say to him, hey, uh, I'm breaking up with Erica. And he says, oh, that seems good because you haven't seemed happy in a very long time. And he's like, so where's it at right now? I'm like, well, I, I told her I wasn't happy, and now her parents are on the way. It's like, my dad's response is, huh, well, good luck with that, and he just hangs up the phone. <laughs> Thanks, Dad. So then her parents arrive, and immediately this is when the conversation starts, is when her parents get there, and all three of them sit down on the couch, and I'm sitting down in a chair facing them, and I'm immediately facing like this tribunal of all three of them, and just, I'm saying things like, well, I just don't feel like either of us are happy. And then all three of them, in, almost in unison, would say, we don't think that's good enough. Which is crazy, because she's never got along with her parents. This is the most unified I've ever seen them. And then she's saying things to me like, well, what about the other day when you fucked me? Were you just trying to have a little bit more fun before you kicked me to the curb? And her dad's sitting right there. So that lasts three hours. Um, 
Like, I had to go on a walk around the block with her dad for a while. Like, it was just every fucking nightmare of that. So then finally, we get through that. She leaves with her parents, leaves me in the apartment, and they're, they're gone. You'd think that would be the worst breakup ever, but it wasn't because she had other things she was going to try because she's 20 and a big relationship was ending, so she wasn't sure what to do. What I figured out to do, rather than try to find a new place, was I just went and got shit-faced at every party I could find for about three days. So, three days later, I wake up. Well, I'm passed out. I'm unconscious in a crappy little futon, little Ikea futon we used to share. And the phone rings. And I pick it up, and what I didn't realize was that her second idea of what to do was to call my mom. And so when I pick up the phone, my mother is immediately screaming at me, what's this I hear about you trying to get into porn? <laughs> and I, I was, I'm still wasted at this point. I'm like, I'm not, what? Erica called me and said, you're trying to get into porn. And I said, that's, no, that's ridiculous. Bye, hang up the phone. I just pass right back out. 20 minutes later, the phone rings again. It's my father. What's this about you being in porn? Like it's now evolved? So what had happened was, Erica had called my mom and said, I found this porn that I tried to get her to find of my ex-girlfriends. She had found that and then sort of purple monkey dishwashered it through my mom, where it became Ben's trying to get into porn and then it went through her crazy to my father and that became Ben's in porn. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to explain this to my father, and he's just yelling. He said, I'm coming into the city right now. I'm like, oh, shit. Okay. I pass right back out. Now I've got 45 minutes until he shows up. So eventually he comes, knocks on the door. I groggily get up. I'm still wasted. And I have to let my dad in, and I have to sit down on this freaking couch again. And now I'm facing this tribunal of my dad as he's saying, I didn't pay for you to go to school just to come to the city so you can get into porn. And I'm like, <laughs> Dad, like, person I broke up with, Woman you're no longer married to, like, why are you taking anyone's word for this? And then finally, like, I don't even convince him that this was crazy. Like, I just basically say to him, fine, I, I agree, I will stop trying to get into porn. <laughs> it's just, fine. Like, he just doesn't believe, he's like, all right, well, no more trying to get into porn. I'm like, yeah, fine, just, just go, please. I am still drunk. Now, that's the second thing that happened. There's a third thing. And... So from the getting her parents and then getting my parents, that still gives you no bloody clue about what this third thing is. So it's about three weeks later. I've since moved out of the apartment. My aunt and uncle who lived up the street were kind enough to take me in. So now I've got to do that slow withdrawal as you try to get all your shit over time. So I give her a call from the studio at school and say, I need to come and pick up some of my clothes. And she says, that's great. I'm really looking forward to seeing you. Okay. So I go over to the apartment and she opens the door and she's like, oh, I'm so glad you're here. And just like, her voice is just nothing but kindness now, which is just so weird. I haven't heard this in so long. She's like, so glad you're here. Please come inside. I want to show you something. <laughs> Immediate terror. I'm like, what on earth could she be showing me? I'm like, what, did you find more porn? I don't care. I don't live here anymore. Like, there's nothing you can show me. Or so I thought. So I come back into the living room. She says, please, sit down. So I sit down here on the couch, and now I'm just facing her. And what she does is she reaches over to a shelf. She pulls down three things. 
One is a tiny pink rubber squeaky pig. The second is a little beanie baby turtle. And the third thing is a little beanie baby kiwi bird. She just places them all out on the table. And she says, this is a story about squeaky pig and turtle. And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna act it out here. Squeaky Pig and Turtle live together. They're very much in love. We'll do a little kiss. One day, Squeaky Pig said, and she goes, squeak, 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 and she squeaks it. And then she says, subtitle, I'm hungry, I want some snacks. Which, to be fair, in the midst of this, that's kind of a good gag to just squeak it and then actually say out loud, subtitle, and then subtitle it. And Turtle says, oh, I'll get you some snacks. And then Turtle walks across the table to where Kiwi Bird works at the convenience store. Says, I would like to buy these snacks. Okay, here you go, thank you. Turtle walks back across the table to Squeaky Pig. Squeaky Pig, squeak, squeak, squeak. Yum, snacks, nom, 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 nom. And Squeaky Pig eats all the snacks. And she is dead serious when she's doing this. Like just so earnest. And so this little, this puppet show goes on for a while, like there's four more acts and it's just the same thing. Turtle keeps going to the kiwi bird store and getting snacks, and the squeaky pig says, and eats it. And the whole time, I'm sitting there, like, trying to figure out my path to the exit, because I'm pretty sure this is going to end with squeaky pig just pulling out a knife and saying, now you have to die. <laughs> She's just that serious about it. But then finally, she gets to the end. Squeaky pig just has a revelation. It's like, squeak, squeak, squeak. I realize I've never thanked you for all the nice things that you've done for me. Turtle says, oh, that's really nice to hear. I've really been wanting to hear that the whole time. Which, again, that was not the problem with our relationship at all. She just, again, she was trying a thing. And she found this one little part of the relationship she felt was not going great. And she's like, if I can admit that, then it can solve everything. It can solve everything that's happened. The parents coming over to trying to convince my parents I was going to porn. It can solve everything. And what would make it even better is if I can make my point through a bloody puppet show. And so, so she finishes it up, and she has them all take a bow. Squeaky Pig takes a bow, Turtle takes a bow, Kiwi Bird takes a bow, he's the little side character. And then she just looks at me dead serious, and she says, what do you think? And I just, with this much cut, and this is the thing, she, like, if she had seemed unhinged when she was doing it, it would have been fine, but she was just so serious about it, which made it just so much scarier and sad. So... I just said, with as much kindness as I could, I think I need to go. And she's like, didn't you need to grab clothes? I'm like, I'll get them next time, it's fine, bye. And I, I just run, I just get out of the door. And that was it, that was the weird three stages of our breakup. So, like now I have, like I said, I have a son now, and a lot of him growing up is gonna be trial and error too. But if he ever comes to me and says, hey, I, I broke up with this person and I really wanna get them back, I'm not gonna have good advice for him, but I think I can save him some time by saying, maybe don't try a puppet show. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, hey, Bert. Oh, hi, Ernie. Hey, I brought home some snacks. Oh, okay. Hmm. Okay, Bert? What is it, Ernie? Is it okay all you have to say? Oh, I guess I meant to say thank, thank you. Thank yeah. you? You meant to say thank you, Bert, but you didn't, just like I thought you wouldn't. Ernie... Ernie! Ernie, put that tape!
chainsaw down. I'm tired of all this, Bert. It's has to stop. Bernie, get away from me with that. What are you doing? Hey! Are you thankful yet, Bert? Bernie! You all right, Bert? Bert? Hey, Bert, you okay? All that music that's cool I like to pace backstage but I knew you were all out here <laughs> so uh, Wes and I met online nerve.com <laughs> after a few months of dating he told me that he just wanted to be my friend my friend that uh, texts me calls me emails me several times a day and sleeps over once or twice a week Weekends really freaked him out, weekend plans. He would, uh, he, we'd talk on like Thursday or Friday night and he'd be like, I don't know, I can't decide, maybe I'll come over. Maybe. I used to call him Mr. Maybe. But I didn't take it personally because this guy, it took him forever to just figure out where he was gonna have his morning coffee. And he'd call me to consult. It's like, I'd be like, you know, well, you went to Starbucks yesterday, maybe the bean today, you know, the one on the, on the East Village. And, and I, I was falling in love with a guy that was incapable of a serious conversation. But I protected myself. We dated other people. <laughs> For me, nobody else stood a chance. Because I always broke down and called Wes. He was like a drug, and I was addicted. And he had six-pack abs. <laughs> I can't think about this now or I won't continue the conversation. <laughs> Six-pack abs. <laughs> okay. Um, I never really had a college or a high school boyfriend, and so that's what he was to me. Even though we were in our 40s, we acted like college kids. We, and he even lived, he lived in the East Village with about five roommates and a, and a small room that actually looked quite a lot like a dorm room. It had the, the loft kind of bunk bed and the desk underneath and I finally got to have sex in a bunk bed. <laughs> I had to wait until I was 40 but I finally got to do it. <laughs> it was really kind of a life achievement for me. I was very excited. So immaturity bonded us. It was like we would bike everywhere. We would bike to Fort Tilden. We'd bike to the new museum, to the old museum to Rite Aid and try on sunglasses. And he was always right ahead of me and he'd be looking back at me and say, you, come on, you can make the light. And I made the light, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Our favorite activity was hiking. We'd go just north of the city to like Bear Mountain. And there was one particular day that we were coming out of a really good hike. It was July of 2009. And I got a phone call that I had been waiting for anxiously and my gynecologist told me that yes, it did look like it could be cancer and that I would need a hysterectomy. I hung up the phone and Wes said, did you have to take that now? He could be prone to insensitivity and meanness. Like when he watched porn over at my house or, or would remind me, seriously, I was there and he'd be Anyway, that's enough information. <laughs> you can picture the rest of that. But um, anyway, so, so it, 
I wasn't sure, you know, what this was going to be like with him in my life, but he showed up. He showed up for the hysterectomy. He was there. He stayed at my house. He watched my dog. He met my parents. He brought me flowers. He did my laundry. He did their laundry. He was there. And when he went back to his house, finally, he left his computer or his uh, email up on my computer, and of course, I peeked. <laughs> and he had this habit of writing himself journal entries and sort of emailing himself little journal bits. And this one said that he thought he was in love with Gail. So there was hope, Mr. Possibility. He'd even sort of mummered something when we were with my parents about being a good son-in-law. So I thought maybe, you know, this was going to be a Hollywood ending. And you know, it was, it was a hard time, obviously, trying to make decisions. I had a lot of big decisions because I had two pathology reports. One of them required like tons of radiation and tons of chemo and all this stuff. The other pathology report re required nothing. So it was hard decisions to make and it was fun to have an immature friend because we would just goof off and bike to doctor's appointments and I made the joke that, hey, wouldn't it be better to get hit by a car than to die from cancer? <laughs> We, that's funny, you guys. <laughs> we thought that was really funny. <laughs> so I settled in on a, on a pretty mild uh, chemo routine, and it looked like it was going to be okay. The doctor was optimistic, and I was optimistic, and that it seemed good. And then Wes told me that he was actually going to go on a second date with someone that he had met before my diagnosis. I got pretty upset. And he mummered something on this street corner about, well, do you want me to just maybe date you? Just maybe. That is not the way it is in Hollywood movies. You know, I don't want to beg for a boyfriend. He's supposed to be like running up the fire escape with flowers, you know? <laughs> so I just said, do what you want. And he went on the date. But I stayed with him. We stayed together because it was still fun. And we went on weekend trips. We went on one trip to, to Boston for the weekend. And that was the Saturday that my hair started to fall out. And he didn't want to put his arm around me for a photo. That break that I took only lasted a few days because he, he did text me and tell me how much he missed me. I couldn't lose my hair and my best friend. And we still had the cuddling. Our sex was inconsistent, and of course I couldn't even have it during that time period, but he was always the best cuddler. I had had a, what they call, it's got a fancy name, it was called, it's actually a funny fancy name, it's called a vaginal-assisted laparoscopic hysterectomy. Whoa, right? Like the fancy stuff they can do these days. Basically what that means is instead of doing a big incision here, they basically use your vagina because there's already a hole there. <laughs> so they took, now no scars. So they took the lady parts and the cancer out that direction and stitched me back up. And the doctors told me, you know, you cannot have sex for six weeks. I'm like, that's fine. I'm sort of focused on other things. That's fine, <laughs> you know. Although when you get told you're not, you can't have it, you really want it more, of course. So 15 weeks later, I could not wait another second, and I attacked Wes and his six-pack abs. December 5th, 2009. We had the most enthusiastic, the best sex we have ever had. It was wonderful. I mean, every 
well, it was just the two of us. We were very enthusiastic participants. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing, and it was over, and I felt like it was great. It was back, and I had my grand opening. I was back in business, you know, oh, man, the, 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 the shop is open. Let's go for this, and it was wonderful, and we danced, and we sang, and we went for, as part of our celebration, we went for a walk to the, the nearby, my local museum, which is Brooklyn uh, Historical Society, for those of you that know it. And, uh, yes, thank you very much. So, so we're walking in there, and it's just such a beautiful day for me. The darkness is behind me, and he, he's walking a little bit ahead of me, which I'm thinking, oh, is he just trying to make the point again that we're not going out? That's fine, and we just had great sex. I have a glow, it doesn't matter. Until I started to feel kind of dizzy and kind of lightheaded. And I started to projectile vomit. I started to feel a lot of pain. And Wes is running over to me like, no, stop, stop, don't do that anymore, stop. It's like, this is not, you know, a college frat party. I'm not drunk, I can't actually control this or I wouldn't be throwing up all over the museum. So we, I stumble down to the bathroom and I sit on the toilet and I look down and there's something pink coming out of my vagina. It's like my lips have lips. And I touch it and I tell it to be patient and I call the doctors and they say get over here and Wes comes around the corner and I swear I will never forget his face as long as I live. He comes around the corner and he's like, whoa! No man should ever have to see that. <laughs> I actually felt sorry for him. But we, we stumbled out onto the street, caught a cab. On the way there, he calls his friend who's a doctor in Brighton, England, and the, he puts me on the phone with his friend, and the friend says, yeah, she sounds like she's in pain. I'm like, okay, thanks. <laughs> That's cool. So I get, you know, we get to the emergency room, and they took me in pretty quickly, and they, they put me in the examining room, and Wes is like, do you want a magazine? And I'm like, no, thank you. Ah, you know, I don't need to read about Jennifer Aniston at a time like this, I can't read anything. And he disappears. He reappears as they are wheeling me into surgery. And I have the, uh, the surgeon on one side of the gurney telling me that she, it was my bladder, in fact, the, st the stitches had broken. My bladder was starting to come out of my body to visit New York City, and they would try to see if they could save it, but she didn't know. On the other side of my gurney, I have Wes freaking out about where to put my keys and my wallet because he doesn't want to hold them. So I go into surgery not knowing if he's going to be there when I get out. The surgery was successful. My bladder is fully, properly back where it belongs. You don't know many people who've touched their bladder, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> so, for a while, Wes and I laughed about his ability, his sexual prowess, that he could actually split me in half. <laughs> kind of incredible. We thought that was funny. But time went on, and ultimately, I let go. Because maybe isn't enough. Thank you.
It ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe It don't matter anyhow And it ain't no use to sit and wonder why, babe This is Risk. This is Peter, Paul, and Mary behind me now. I used to listen to this song on the record player after school every day when I was in the fourth grade. <laughs> I would put either one penny and then it had to be two pennies eventually and then it had to be a nickel on top of the stylus of the record player because the skips were so deep in the grooves that <laughs> I had to kind of force the stylus down to make its way over the skips in the record. Before that, we heard from the wonderful New York storyteller Gail Thomas. And before that, we heard a little comedy sketch uh, performed and edited by our own Jeff Barr called Dial M for Muppet and written by me. It's been a long time since we've done an actual little comedy sketch on the show. And I know, I know that some of you hated it. <laughs> Don't worry. Don't fret. I totally comprehend that Ira would not have featured Ernie chainsawing Bert's limbs off on his show. <laughs> I get it. I got it. Consider it Gat. <laughs> the great Gat. Even all right, now I'm just talking nonsense. Let's get to our last story. This one comes to us from the lovely and talented actress Jillian English, who told it at the recent Risk Live show in Toronto. The story has a sort of Shakespearean-ness about it, so we call this one let Rome in Tiber melt. I'm a thinking and a wondering all the way down the road. I once loved a woman, a child untold. I gave her my heart, but she wanted my soul. Don't think twice, it's all right. There was something very Shakespearean about my relationship with Will McGregor right from the beginning. We were both Nova Scotian, and even though I'm from there, I never really dated a Nova Scotian before. So when I went home to visit, I told my grandmother that I was dating a Nova Scotian, and not even just a Nova Scotian, a Cape Bretoner, a Highlander. She was mad at me. Well, what is he, my love? Is he Clan McDonald or Clan Campbell? And I said, I don't, I don't know, Granny, he's a McGregor. I don't think he's either of those. No, my love, we all go back. He's either Clan McDonald or Clan Campbell. You're a McClellan that makes you Clan McDonald. Now, if he's McDonald, you shouldn't date him. He's your cousin, that's weird. <laughs> and if he's Clan Campbell, 
then you really shouldn't date him because Campbell's are dirty, traitorous murders. <laughs> and I said, Granny, okay, that clan war was in 1692. I think we can let that go. Tell that to your dead ancestors what were murdered in their sleep by dirty, traitorous Campbells. Date your cousin, my love, but don't you dare date a Campbell. He'll break your heart. So Will was a Campbell. Uh, we were star-crossed lovers right off the top. Capulets, Montagues. But we decided to cross party lines and defy our families and date anyway because uh, no one really cared except for my 96-year-old grandmother. <laughs> and I had been in Nova Scotia for two weeks, so I hadn't seen Will uh, for two weeks when he came in to audition for Antony in the production of Antony and Cleopatra I was mounting. Now, I was producing this show and I was also playing Cleopatra. I had just called off a wedding like two years prior and it took me some time to like get my power back. So I was being very assertive, uh, voted most likely to always have an opinion. So <laughs> there was that. I was very assertive. I was the artistic producer of my own company. So I was really into my own power. I also play Aussie Rules football, very violent contact sport, and I'm good at it. So every guy who came into audition for Antony, I steamrolled them. I emasculated them instantly. They came in with bravado and machismo, and I matched it. And they deflated. Their posture would go, their breath support would go, everything would collapse, and I would just walk all over them. Because um, I wasn't about to play the queen of Egypt as a wilting flower, so step it up, gentlemen, or I'll do it myself. So, oh, thank you. So that was the day that we had been having when Will McGregor came into audition. Now, every other guy who came into audition when they got to the line, let Rome and Tiber melt, here is my space. They made it a, a very large proclamation. Let Rome and Tiber melt, here is my space. When Will did that line, came up behind me, he brushed my hair aside. He put his lips ever so gently on my ear. And he said, let Rome and Tiber melt. Here is my space. And on here is my space, he kind of thrust his manliness into the, into the back of me. And um, every nerve ending I had fired, every hair on my body stood on end. I was essentially a puddle on the floor and I forgot my line. <laughs> that is the most turned on I've ever been in my life. And the audition had to end because I was not physically able to formulate words. So uh, Will leaves and, and Will, I should explain to you why I was so attracted to him. He was the physical embodiment of home for me. He was Nova Scotia. He was Highlander, Clan Campbell. He was fit, he was tall, he liked literature, he liked Shakespeare, he was also super into deadlifting. Um, but he was just, he was the down-home boy that I was supposed to have been with the whole time and here he finally was. And so, anyway, Will leaves, because the audition was over and the director looks at me and goes, who was that? and please tell me you're sleeping with him. <laughs> I think his name is Will, and yes, I am. Uh, she said, I hope that won't be a problem, because you two are about to be working together. So that is how Will was cast as Antony to my Cleopatra. And um, so we, we, away we went with the show, and rehearsals went well for a little while, 
But um, a fault of mine is that I tend to get very excited about things very early on and think perhaps they're more than they are. And I quite liked Will. You know, he was home to me and he, he was, you know, he was good at his job. Uh, so things, things were going well. Um, but one thing that really bothered me about Will is he never said thank you. Not ever. It didn't matter what. Like, I could bring him dinner. I could offer him a kidney. He would not say thank you. And it drove me insane. And I would, um, he would be coming to rehearsal straight from work, so I'd bring him a meal. He'd come straight from the gym, so I'd bring him a spare T-shirt. Now, he was working out a lot. Uh, because we were doing a very sexy production of Antony and Cleopatra, like leather chaps, shirtless. So it was fair. It was fair for him to really want to work out. And I was concerned because um, Will had a heart condition. And, and we, we both, you know, I knew about it. We talked about it. And I wanted to make sure he was being safe in his workouts because they were very intense. And he was. But I'd bring him an extra shirt and he would just not say thank you. Like, can you just say thank you for me? No? All right, fine. I don't think he was willfully trying to be mean or rude. I think he just forgot. He would just forget to say thank you. I mean, he was coming out of a very messy breakup. A woman had really broken his heart. Samesies for me. I called off a wedding. You don't do that without <laughs> some damage. So we were both just trying to get back to normal, but I thought we had a, a really good shot. I thought that this could be, you know, the one. And then we started to drift apart. And he got a little you know, like colder with me. We were still seeing each other all the time, rehearsing for this play, playing the world's greatest lovers. Uh, but I started to notice that we would see each other in rehearsal and then not do anything outside of rehearsal. And so one night when we were leaving, we were walking to the subway, I said, so things have been kind of different with us recently. Do you want to talk about that? And he said, yeah. Um, it's just I'm still really hurt about my ex, I don't think I've recovered, and you're great, but I really feel like I just need to be by myself and get better on my own. And that crushed me. Because I, I was working my way up to being in love with Will, and he was too concerned about what someone else had done, but that's always the case. That's not new or exciting or special. But we still had to do the show, so I said, hey, that's cool, that's fine. We'll just you be alone. Not that he could be alone, because again, we saw each other all day, every day to do this show. Um, so rehearsals got strange. We were very hot and cold. We would come into the rehearsal hall. We would not say a word to each other. We would go backstage, furiously make out, and then go and do the show, like do uh, the rehearsal, and then leave without speaking to each other. <laughs> so like weird and the rest of the cast is like what is happening um, I'm supposed to be a professional here you guys uh, a perfect example of this was one night I was running late for rehearsal and I was trying to get away from work and I'm clumsy a door got scraped over the top of my foot like hard and I had a huge gash in my foot it was bleeding it was gross but I was running late so I went to rehearsal and I get there and Will's there obviously and he just takes me aside takes me into another room, cleans out my foot, bandages it. And we don't say a word to each other the whole time. And then when he's done, he looks at me and says, do you want a hug? And I said, not from you! And I slammed the door in his face. So that's where that was. 
So then um, we moved into the theater that we were going to be performing in, and we were doing our tech rehearsal. And we were at the point of the play, if you don't know Antony and Cleopatra, Antony decides he's going to kill himself. So he stabs himself in the gut, and then he goes, oh, I'm going to die. <laughs> Bring me Cleopatra. So I've been brought to him, and he's in my arms, and he's dying. And I'm looking at him. He's very clammy. He's sweaty. His eyes are wide. His whole body is tense. His breathing is super erratic. And I was like, huh. Will's always been a pretty okay actor, but he is committing right now for a tech rehearsal. Go, yeah. And he, he looks in my eyes and he says his line, I'm dying, Egypt, I'm dying. And at that moment, our stage manager got on the mic and goes, okay, guys, that's 10. Uh, we'll see you back tomorrow. And Will looks at me and he was like, you got to get me to the hospital right now. He was dying, Egypt, he was dying. That heart condition of Will's that I was so concerned about when he was working out, that's a variant of Wolf Parkinson White that he had. And that basically meant that he had errant electrical pathways in his heart that would cause his heart to just beat at highly erratic rhythms for reasons we didn't know. And it, it had flared up a couple times and it was just little and, it was, and then it would die down. But this was not a little thing, this was quite large. I was producing this show. I invested a lot of my own personal money into it. We were opening in 48 hours. I did not have an understudy, and he was wearing his costume. So I said, go change, and I'll call a cab. I don't know why I didn't call an ambulance. I called a cab, but I was not about to try to make brand new leather pants in less than 48 hours. They were going to cut them. No, go change. So I made him change. I got him to the hospital in less than 10 minutes. He was fine. <laughs> So, when you arrive at the hospital, normally for outpatients, you have to wait for quite some time. When Will and I got there, he said, I have Wolf Parkinson White and I'm having an attack and eat right away if you want a, a hospital hack. Uh, that'll, that'll get you in real quick. So, they took Will in right away and I'm left at the front to fill out the paperwork. And that was okay. I had his address. I had his... Um, I knew his phone number, all of that, until the nurse got to the section. So she said, and what is your relationship to the patient? And that's when the world stopped. What is my relationship to the patient? Do I say he's my ex-boyfriend? Do I say we're co-stars? Do I say he's an actor, I'm a producer? Do I say, I thought I could maybe love this man and I thought maybe he could love me too, but it seems now not so much, but we're very involved professionally and I can't let him, I can't let him die 48 hours before we open? Do you have room on the line for that? So I, I just, I said I was his friend. I went with friend. We were friends. So in we go to the hospital and when we got there Will had a resting heartbeat of 186 beats per minute with spikes up to 250 you hit 300 you pass out the body can't handle it and Will was on the verge of losing consciousness several times throughout the evening and it was terrifying and I sat on the edge of his hospital bed and I watched the heart monitor and it would be at 170 and then drop down to 60 and then right back up to 280 and it was all over the place and I couldn't wrap my brain around what was happening in his body. And they thought that maybe it would normalize on its own. It didn't. 
So they tried a drug via IV. Took an hour to administer, an hour to see if it worked. It didn't. There was only one option to get Will's heart beating at a normal rhythm so that he didn't die, and that was to put him under, momentarily stop his heart, and shock it back into a normal rhythm. Will was terrified of this. He was a very tall, big, strong Cape Breton man. He did not show fear, except in this moment. I've never seen anyone look more just like a scared child, and I don't mean that in a mean way. I mean he just looked lost and terrified because he had been presented with two options of death, and he had to pick the one that was least likely. And he was gripping onto my hand. He didn't quite know what to do. He was terrified that if they put him under, he might not ever wake up again. But it was kind of the only option, so he agreed to go through with the procedure. I was not allowed to stay in the hospital room for this. I was not family. And he begged. He pleaded, please, please can she stay? Please, please and thank you, can she stay? No. So I went on the other side of the curtain. It wasn't a proper hospital room. It was just a curtained off little section um, in the ER. And I told him I would, I would be there when he woke up. And I would talk to him until he had lost consciousness. And I did. But the floors had just been waxed at the hospital. So I could see everything reflected in the ground. And specifically, I could see his feet, because he's so tall, hanging over the side of the bed and they put him under and I remember hearing the erratic beep of the EKG of his heart monitor and then that brief flat line and the charge of the paddles and then his whole body just convulsed in one moment and then the doctors were yelling will will are you there? Are you with us? William? William? Are you there? And I just started sobbing. Deep, guttural sobs because in that moment he was dead. He was gone. And then what seemed like a millennia later, but it was probably less than half a second, he was back. I could hear the beep of his heart and it was beating at a normal rhythm and he would be fine. And they let me back into his hospital room and he clung on to my hand again. And he said, thank you. And he told me he loved me. I love you, Jill, you know that, right? You know I love you. And I laughed at him a little bit and I was like, okay. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you love me, we'll, uh, we'll talk about it tomorrow when you're not hopped up on anesthesia, okay? <laughs> and he said, no, I, I love you. I'll tell you tomorrow, I promise, I'll tell you. And he kept thanking everyone. He thanked me, he thanked the doctors, he thanked the nurses. He was saying thank you as though he's getting a lifetime of it out. And, um, and he, he was fine. So he's like, I'm okay now, I can go, I can go, right? And I said, when you stop saying thank you, we'll know that you've normalized and then we can go. And eventually he did. He did stop saying thank you after a time. Once the drugs wore off and they let us go. And he was so hungry, so I took him to an all-night diner and I bought him breakfast. And then I took him home, because I had been talking to his mother, 
during this whole ordeal, and I had promised her that I would sleep in bed with him that night because she was terrified he would die in his sleep from anesthesia. So I got him home, and I got him into bed. I wrapped my arms around him so I could feel the rise and fall of his chest, and we went to sleep. And in the morning, we both woke up so he didn't die, and he gave me a hug. He kissed me on top of my forehead, and he did not tell me that he loved me. And I left, and I went to rehearsal, and shortly thereafter, Bill arrived at rehearsal as well, because we were opening the next night, and we had a show to do. Now that next night, when I was backstage for that part where Anthony stabs himself in the gut for only Anthony shall conquer Anthony, so manly. Um, I'm backstage, and I'm watching him do that, but I didn't see a sword hit his stomach. I saw his feet hanging over the side of the bed. And when he went to stab himself, I audibly gasped. And my co-stars are looking at me like, he's not that good an actor, what's going on? (laughs) But I wasn't on the stage. I was back in that hospital and I was watching him die all over again. And it was very real which translated wonderfully on stage. Um, We got wonderful reviews and the show went really well. Will and I uh, never got back together and we probably never will. It just wasn't meant to be. Granny was right that Campbell broke my heart, but uh, he broke his own too, so we'll call it even. Um, And we've never spoken about that night ever again. He's probably my only ex that I would consider my actual friend And we've never talked about it, specifically the fact that we both probably love each other very much, not romantically anymore, but just as people, but that we'll never be together because that's just not what was meant for us. We're not Romeo and Juliet. We're not Antony and Cleopatra. We're just Will and Jill, two star-crossed lovers from Nova Scotia. Thank you.
that is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Junior Junior behind me now. And hey, we have a big announcement for anyone who lives in New York City, the home base for Risk, the place where we originated. Our show here in New York is moving to a much bigger theater. We're moving to the Bell House in Brooklyn starting in January. Starting in January, make sure to spread the word. We're going to be at the Bell House every fourth Wednesday. I want to say a very heartfelt thank you to two fans in, I think it was Toronto, named Lisa and Mark, who wrote me a beautiful letter and gave me a copy of a book called The Inside Out Revolution. I devoured it, and I, I am now on to a bunch of other books along the same lines of thinking, but I don't know how to reach you two, so I'll just say thank you here. In the meantime, let's scroll down the tour page at risk-show.com. On November 6th, we'll be in Atlanta. Come out and see us. On November 14th, Milwaukee. We're still taking pitches for that one. Theme is Fuck This. On the 19th, we're back in New York. On the 21st of November, we are in Cleveland. Still taking pictures for that one as well. The theme is so emotional. On November 28th, we're in LA. On December 12th, we are in Salt Lake City. The theme is twisted, and we're still taking pictures for that one as well. If you've never been over to thestorystudio.org, Get over there, because if you live in New York or Los Angeles, we have in-person workshops. If you don't, we have video lecture courses that you can take in your own time. Or I train people one-on-one -on -one over Skype, and of course, we have our corporate workshops as well. That is all at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Now I'm just talking nonsense.